Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Wapso Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Jesse Felder makes his second appearance on Opto Sessions, having made his debut with Ed back in October. Jesse began his professional career at Bear Stearns and later co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund headquartered in Santa Monica, California. Then in 2000, Jesse moved to Oregon, founding the Felder Report shortly after, and since his research has featured in major publications like the Wall Street Journal, Barron's and Business Insider. Jesse and I spoke about an asset that's polarized opinion like no other, Bitcoin. Jesse presents a typically contrarian outlook for the long-term value of the cryptocurrency while recognizing the speculative gains to be made now. Felder highlights intriguing investments in energy, commodities more broadly, and a potential pivot away from overvalued growth stocks towards real assets. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the podcast, Jesse. Um, So how's your week been so far? Uh, it's been great. It's been an interesting week uh, with, you know, rising rates is uh, kind of uh, playing games with the rest of the markets right now. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly an interesting time to be a stock market investor, that's for sure. First of all, I'll, I'll get stuck into a topic that we're going to talk a little bit about throughout the course of the interview. And then we will circle back and cover a bit of your background. But um, for any listeners that have been with us a little while, They'll, they'll have a bit of uh, context to who you are and what you do. But first of all, global equities have added over $7 trillion since the start of the year. Um, and stock funds have seen unprecedented inflows. What are the key factors propping up this rampant speculation, in your opinion? Well, I do think it comes back to, uh, well, there's, there's two things. It's really a, a perfect storm. I, I think it begins with Fed policy. Uh, when you know Fed lowers rates to zero percent, I've heard from tons of um, you know more conservative investors uh, about the difficulty in trying to find yield. I mean, CDs pay nothing, Treasury bills pay nothing, and so a lot of these folks that I hear from are going into the corporate bond market, and so we see spreads. You know, junk junk yields are you know four percent or something, and spreads are compressed to um, very very low levels. And that filters through all the rest of the the markets. Um, And at the same time, you know, we've seen the kind of the gamification of the markets through a platform like Robinhood, which allows, you know, um, for example, you know, a 20 year old investor to last year, for example, who, you know, was able to uh, attain a million dollars of leverage uh, in the options market, which, you know, an account with that, you know, $10,000, $20,000. So, there's, there's uh, uh, I think, the combination of free trading, the gamification of investing, leverage, and Fed policy have created a perfect storm for the speculative mania that we're witnessing right now. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I mean, mania is probably probably quite an apt word to use here. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into the detail of that uh, in just a second. But for those listeners that missed that first interview uh, with uh, my co-host, Ed Gotham, back in October, can you just give us a quick pricey of who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, I, I, uh, 
started in finance um, professionally, uh, working for Bear Stearns in the mid-90s. I left Bear, co-founded a hedge fund um, in Los Angeles, was head trader, co-portfolio manager of uh, the, the fund for several years before I, I quit the fund. And really over the last 15 years, I've just been kind of writing um, you know, about the markets. And you know, my, my process is really centered on, uh, to me, one of the concepts that really had a major impact on me uh, at an early time in my career was the margin of safety concept. And and finding things that are uh, undervalued relative to their intrinsic value, um, I think is especially today an underappreciated uh, methodology. Um, you know, to me, I want to find those things that I, I think are trading at a discount because they you know help limit your risk and enhance return, which kind of flips the the idea that you have to take more risk to generate more return in the markets uh, on its head, and so. You know, for example, a stock I, I maybe spoke about last October was uh, Bed Bath and Beyond, as a stock I've been kind of publicly mm. talking about for you know a couple of years now. Um, traded down to four or five dollars a share at its lows last year, and was worth, in my view, at least thirty. Um, mm. And you know, like GameStop, had a massive short interest, and and uh, with the improving fundamentals, it was clear that that stock was going to. Um, to me, be a w- was a terrific risk reward, um, and I didn't think it would go from four to fifty. But uh, <laughs> those are the types of things you know. That that's kind of what I spend my time doing is looking for those types of opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the content you're putting out there. Uh, that's on the FelderReport.com. I had a look at some of the content, obviously, in preparation for this call, uh, and I get your email newsletter as well. Um, so I'd certainly implore our listeners to to head over there. Uh, there's some really interesting stuff in there, some of which we'll talk about during the interview. And there's some really interesting points there you picked up about your investment philosophy and kind of how contrarian, if we can use that that word, and maybe we can't, it is. But as I say, we'll, we'll go into that later on. I want to return first, though, to this, this rampant speculation. Uh, JP Morgan measure cross-asset complacency basing their rating on factors like valuations and price momentum. Uh, And their gauge, uh, I think I read this article, it was a couple of days ago now, but their gauge suggests people are feeling the least fearful or complacent since the dot-com bubble. So irrespective of whether we actually agree with the the gauge and the validity of it and its results, are stock market investors at their most complacent right now? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand, uh, you know, I don't completely how that indicator works, but from my perspective, absolutely, I do think we're seeing a, uh, you can call it a lack of fear or, um, you know, a risk appetite, a willingness to take risk. That is, you know, truly something that we've, I don't think we've ever seen before, at least I've never seen in my career. Uh, you know, it's when, a broad swath of investors is willing to take their entire account, uh, entire trading account, um, and in a lot of cases, this is their entire net worth, and put it into short dated options that expire you know, in less than a week's time and are far out of the money, um, you know, call options, and literally put, put everything they have on a lottery ticket, essentially. To me, that is about as, as uh, as far as I could ever imagine risk taking going. And we're seeing that on in a, you know, be done in a broad, broad way 
by a lot of very inexperienced investors. To me, that's that is yeah. Th- there is no fear whatsoever out there at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to put ninety percent, even a hundred percent of your investment pot on it on a bet like GameStop, for example, just seems kind of kind of ludicrous at the moment. I mean, just as an aside, do you think it's a lack of education? Are you kind of fearful about? the amount of uneducated or unsophisticated investors that we've got in the market at the moment? That, that doesn't trouble me as much as, you know, how, where they're directing their efforts. I think it's, yeah. it's great uh, to, to, for people to become more interested in the markets and learn. And I, I really do hope that a lot of these new traders will, um, you know, find a passion for investing and, uh, you know, learn from these uh, experiences they're having, you know, but I, but I do think what I worry most about is, um, yeah, the, is not just people buying GameStop, you know, putting 90% of their money in GameStop, but those people who, you know, put a 90 or hundred percent of their money into GameStop call options that, you know, expired Friday and, you know, you know, maybe had a $700 strike price. I mean, it, it sounds insane, but that's exactly what's going on. And, and to me, that's what I worry most about is for those folks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, I, I read your recent piece on the Federal Report website, which referenced the unprecedented level of margin debt to GDP. So firstly, for those listening in, a lot of which obviously won't have read that piece, perhaps you can just briefly explain why you chose that metric, that measure to get a sense of speculation in the market right now. Well, you know, I think it comes back to... Um, John Kenneth Galbraith, I think, was the you know the originator of the quote said that you know even the most circumspect uh, market observer has to admit that this the the total level of brokers' loans or margin debt, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, is a good indicator of the amount of speculation going on in the markets. And I think it has to be normalized uh, in some respect. I think we're we're pushing 800 billion dollars in, in leverage right now. Which is a lot higher than it was at the peak of the dot-com mania. So you have to, I mean, potentially triple uh, the peak uh, leverage that was used in 2000. So you know, there's inflation over that time. So you got to find a way to normalize it. Uh, I use GDP because I think that's a good independent metric, and, and it shows leverage speculation relative to the size of the economy. Um, a, a lot of people will, you know, use market or I'm sorry, margin debt to uh, market cap, and to me, that's that is a faulty metric. It's it's as if you were going to measure, uh, you know, try and understand, um, you know, how dangerous somebody's smoking habit was by c- comparing it to their body mass index. <laughs> uh, you know, it, the larger the person is, you the the you know you would say, okay, well, one pack a day cigarettes is is not a big deal because you weigh four hundred pounds. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's, you know, what people are doing when they compare margin debt to market cap, uh, you're, you're basically saying because stocks are so extremely overvalued, uh, you know, 800 billion in margin debt matters less. And to me, that I think that's a flawed way of looking at it. So I use uh, margin debt to GDP. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good analogy that, that makes it that makes it quite real for me. And actually, it's probably one of the best ways to get a true sense of this this trend that we're seeing in the markets at the moment. Um, but to dig into that trend, then, can this historic level of leverage debt tell us anything about how the stock market itself is likely to perform moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's not just the overall level, which is that margin debt to GDP is at a record high. Uh 
the previous two peaks in 2000 and 2007 were roughly at the, the same level. Um, but I think we're roughly three and a half percent in terms of margin debt to GDP, which is above both of those prior peaks. To me, it helps explain the incredible rally that we've seen. But when we also look at the nine month change in margin debt, um, we've seen the, the, the most rapid change uh, growth in margin debt over a nine month period that we've seen in, in decades. To me, that's astounding to be starting from a very high level of margin debt to GDP to begin with very high amount of leverage and then to see it surge by 60 you know more than 60 percent in a nine-month period um, when you see those surges almost every single time it's a, it's a blow-off it, it signifies a blow-off uh, we saw that kind of in you know 1987 prior to the crash we saw it in 2000 we saw it in the 2007 peak but none of those uh, in nine-month increases were as rapid as the one that we've we've just seen uh, and so I do think what margin debt to me uh, represents is the potential for uh, supply that could come to the markets. I mean, everybody knows that when you, perhaps a lot of people don't, but everybody should know that when you take on margin debt, you're at risk of, of getting a margin call when prices go against you. Yeah. Yeah. And so that leveraged speculation uh, can turn into forced supply into the markets uh, when they start to go the other direction. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. So to what extent will this sort of excessive or boom in leveraged trading precede a bear market? Is, is that something we should expect sort of in the near term? So I, I think, it, yeah, to me, it, to me I, I look at margin debt as um, an a indicator of potential risk in the market. So if that margin debt does turn into potential supply, what would that look like, right? So we have a record amount of leveraged speculation going on in the markets. If that is, you know, goes through a, a forced unwind, to me, yeah, it probably means uh, we're going to see, um, you know, another 40, 50, 60% decline in the stock market for, you know, in order for that to be unwound. That's just the history of, the, of that measure, at least over the last 25 years. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if uh, this this piece that I'm referencing here came with a few graphs, and one of them sort of showed the peak in leveraged debt versus stock market performance, you could see how these peaks tended to precede a bear market. So if we if we're using sort of historical performance as as an indication of where the stock market is headed, you know, do you think that's around the corner? Is this something we should expect in the short term, medium term, or 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 not? I do think that, that typically the type of blow off we're seeing right now suggests you're in the final months of, of a blow off phase so that, you know, a reversal could happen. To me, you know, there are other indicators to look at that would help confirm the, the idea that uh, a reversal is imminent. Yeah. But just looking at margin debt alone, this type of a surge usually suggests that, uh, you know, there, there's a peak probably you know, probable within the next uh, few months. The other thing that I'll say is there's, it's, a, it's not as close of a relationship, hasn't worked as well. But when you take that margin debt to GDP metric, and this is also another reason why I look at it, and uh, you compare it to three-year returns going forward, um, it, it shows you potential for risk. And, and at, like I said, at those prior two peaks, when we got close to 3% to margin debt to, to GDP, uh, you know, we had 50% declines in the stock market. 
So this would suggest that you know the, the, the potential for a decline or the potential um, depth of a decline could be at least on par with those two bear markets. Yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah. And completely appreciate it's one piece of the puzzle, but certainly piques my interest and should encourage people to kind of look further into this, this idea that a bear market could be around the corner because uh, I mean, at least on the retail side of things, it certainly seems that that's not at the top of people's agenda and not something that many of them are considering at the moment. Um, so, so really fascinating thoughts there. So thanks for sharing that. And, uh, I, I want to turn to your sort of philosophy now, and I guess your investment strategy more broadly, um, before we have a look at current markets and some potential opportunities there. Uh, your your website's tagline is taking the financial road less travelled. Uh, it was an interesting sort of phrase and sentence. So firstly, can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think generally what I'm trying to do is uh, you know a- avoid the most popular uh, investments or even strategies in the markets, because to me, you know, one of the most dangerous um, dynamics in the markets is crowding. You know, whenever you see crowding, um, it, it can be problematic, whether it's short volatility a few years ago, which blew up in 2018, or, uh, you know, these these options trades that we're, we're seeing today, which I do believe contributed to the, the crash we saw in March. And, you know, when they're unwound, uh, you know, could, you know, potentially be as, as uh, dynamic as that uh, vol implosion was in 2018. So it's, it's really about uh, avoiding crowding and looking for those areas of opportunity that are ignored. And uh, I, I guess maybe the best way to think about that in terms of recent history is a lot of the opportunities I'm finding in the markets have been created by uh, the popularity of passive investing. So things that aren't well represented in the indexes uh, have become terrific opportunities uh, you know, very recently. And so I think that you know, probably helps to um, explain that, that tagline. Okay, yeah, interesting. So actually the rise in passive investing has helped you to identify more opportunities that I guess are contrarian to the majority of flows because as we know the majority of flows go into sort of indexes and things like that so is is that a trend that you've experienced over kind of in recent time over the past few years yeah absolutely and i think it was i don't know 20 years ago or something maybe longer you know i, I maybe it was yeah 30 years ago one of my favorite buffett warren buffett quotes he said that uh, hmm. you know what better advantage could a true investor have than to have, uh, you know, a, a big majority of the uh, investing population be taught, be trained that research is a waste of time. And, you know, he said this 25, 30 years ago. And today, passive investing is so much more popular than it was when he said that, that I do think there's an incredible opportunity today, just due to the sheer fact that the vast majority of investors have given up on doing any research at all, it creates opportunity for those of us who who believe in the in the value of, of of research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to what extent then are you so so you're looking at areas of the market that are less explored and and not going to necessarily be picked up by the sort of passive uh, the massive passive funds. But to what extent are you looking for sort of mispriced or misvalued uh, opportunities? Does that come into it? 
Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I think probably the last time um, I was on an Opto Sessions interview, I, I spoke about the opportunity and energy. Mm. And to me, um, this is probably representative of, of what I'm trying to do because you look at what what's most, you know, it's not only passive investing that's become very popular in recent years, uh, even more so. I think the, you look at the flows that have gone into ESG funds in the past two, three years, and that's been the area within passive uh, that's become, you know, very, very popular kind of the focus of investors' attention. Yeah. And so energy was already, you know, fell to 2% of the S&P 500 index, the smallest share in the history of that index. And I think a big part of that is, you know, money flows into ESG, which is very, very well-intentioned. Um, I absolutely understand the intention. But, uh, you know, they have no exposure to energy. And that essentially creates forced selling of all these energy stocks to the point where last October, you know, last time I, I spoke to you guys about the energy opportunity, all of these stocks were trading as if they were all going to go bankrupt and that we were not going to use oil uh, ever again, and that we were all going to switch to 100% uh, EVs uh, within the next couple of years. And, you know, now the oil price is over $60 a barrel, and what's going on in Texas is creating you know, exacerbating what is could be the early stages of an energy crisis, and the energy stocks are are, are soaring, and and so all of these passive investors who have no exposure, and especially ENG, ESG have no exposure, uh, have have missed what I've seen as just a terrific opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I want to get into energy uh, and sort of explore that opportunity uh, in a little bit more detail in in just a second because I think, as you say. That, that story's progressed since the interview in October and maybe even the investment case has actually strengthened since then. Uh, but just to finish on your philosophy, I mean, we've talked about kind of where you're looking in the markets and it's not simply just looking where someone else isn't looking. I think there's probably an element here uh, that we haven't discussed, which is timing. I mean, uh, I, I said I, I got your newsletter and I, I, I had a look back. I think the first sort of welcome message you get, yeah, you get, you have a quote at the top uh, by Jim Grant, which reads, the key to successful investing is having everyone agree with you later, the emphasis on later. So does that suggest then that timing is imperative for successful contrarian positions? Absolutely. I think, you know, the best time to enter a, a position is when it's most hated, um, mm. you know, and, and to me, you know, uh, when ExxonMobil was kicked out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average last year, that was pretty representative of the hate towards energy. And, you know, I use other other tools to try and that, that are helpful with timing. I, you know, uh, I'm not, I don't consider myself necessarily a value investor. I think value has kind of been bastardized um, by a lot of the, uh, you know, systematic um, type of investors. But so I, I, you know, I'll use technical analysis and momentum analysis too um, that I, I think help with understanding, uh, you know, what uh, in, in terms of timing. I mean, very simply, momentum to me has been something that I've studied for fifteen plus years. When you overlay that onto a, a contrarian framework, it can be, it can be, you know, to me was the missing piece of the puzzle. So 
um, you know, finding things that are hated out of favor, but are, you know, don't have strong downside momentum, you know, to me that come and a potential for reversal in, in momentum. Um, are the types of things that I'm looking for. Okay, yeah, I hadn't appreciated sort of the momentum aspect. So that's the factor you're looking for to give you the sort of signal, the insight to actually go and make the trade and take a position. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, the energy stocks as a, as a good example, last year, um, you know, ExxonMobil was, you know, kicked out of the Dow uh, and, and the stock was, you know, to me, that was peak hate for the stock yeah. back at the end of October, right around Halloween. Uh, was I think the timing of that, but the stock didn't make a new low, right? It didn't. It didn't break below its March lows, and so to me, that's a good example of um, it holding support technically, uh, and and so downside momentum was dramatically less mm. in October than it was in March. Downside momentum was very strong in March. However, you want to measure it based on RSI or any other kinds of measures. Um, uh, and so to me, it was peak hate, but uh, technically momentum was suggesting that, you know, a lot of the selling that had been done in the stock uh, had, had, you know, already been done prior, uh, probably back in the spring. And uh, there wasn't enough selling pressure and momentum to push to new lows, which was a positive sign technically. Yeah. Okay. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess now we've got a little bit more context around your sort of investment philosophy. Uh, I want to move us on to sort of current opportunities. The first one we've we've touched on it already is is energy. Uh, you discussed this uh, sector during your first uh, interview with Ed back at the end of October. So the story's progressed since then, uh, with both J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs calling a new super cycle in oil earlier this week. I think so. From an investment perspective, have people been too quick to shift their focus away from oil and onto renewables? Absolutely. I do think there's a bubble uh, in uh, renewables and especially in the electric vehicle segment, um, the, the prices of these stocks. You know, every investor is hoping to find the next Tesla and, and Tesla is obscenely overvalued mm. right now uh, itself. So I think, yeah, the, the traditional oil and gas energy sector is the flip side. Um, you know, as my friend Diego Perilla would call it, it's the anti-bubble to the, the bubble in the rest of the market. Um, as I said, these, these stocks, to me, you know, back in the fall, were, were trading at a small fraction of their intrinsic value, even if the oil price weren't to go on to a new super cycle. Now, if, if the oil price um, does what I think it possibly could do, I mean, we have supplies uh, here that are dramatically reduced and um, demand set to pick up significantly in the second half of the year. It could lead to, uh, you know, uh, an energy crisis to where we see oil back at $100 a barrel pretty quickly. Uh, if that's the case, then these stocks are still... Yeah, I, I read a, an FT piece uh, before the call that also suggests that actually the price per barrel could exceed $100. Um, so it's interesting that you, that you see that that could reach that level kind of moving forward, um, which is obviously a massive shift away from where it is currently. Um, so a potentially really uh, sort of interesting opportunity there for people to look out for. Uh, so you invested in any oil sort of producers or oil, um, just the commodity uh, at the moment. Have you got any active positions in that space? I do. And, you know, they are all um, short-term overbought um, and 
um, technically kind of running into some short-term resistance levels. But I do like the oil and gas mm-hmm. producers as a group, you know, as a segment um, out of all those areas. I also like the infrastructure uh, plays too. In fact, I think those maybe still have um, some some good short-term upside ahead. Uh, the, the yield differential between these infrastructure, a lot of these infrastructure stocks and, um, you know, other fixed income uh, asset classes is still far too wide. And that's, to me, that's still investors pricing in this, uh, the death of the, the, you know, oil and gas sector. Uh, so, you know, yeah, those are the, the sectors I like. I think in the short run, because the, the broader market is maybe vulnerable to a reversal, that uh, you know these stocks, you know, could you know uh, correct uh, from here. But I, I do think you know I, I want to be buying the dips in the energy sector over the next several months. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now back to the show. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And when we reach this point that obviously we will inevitably get to, I suppose, where oil is, is no longer our primary energy source and renewables do sort of supplant oil as, as the key energy source. I mean, it may be an obvious question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. What, what happens to the price of oil then? I mean, is it as simple as saying it will collapse without the, the demand that we have for it now? Or kind of how, how does that play out? It's such a big market sort of around the world. I was just interested to get your get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's, that's, that's going to be decades in the future. And I, I think people don't appreciate that. I think they yeah, think that's true. within the next 10 years, we're not going to use oil anymore. And, and that's absolutely unrealistic. Uh, you know, the, I think the other thing people forget is the more capital that goes into an industry, um, the worse prices are going forward, right? It's, it's simple supply and demand. You have massive, I mean, we saw it in the oil price, right? You had so much mm. capital, uh, from the Fed lowers rates to 0% in 2009, 10, the oil and gas, you know, fracking companies can borrow money for nothing. They invest in, uh, you know, massive uh, exploration and production in the United States and the oil price crashes a few years later. Um, and, and so now today we've seen so much production come offline and we see literally no interest at all, even from oil companies, to invest in exploration and production. To me, that is very, very supportive of the prices going forward. And all the capital today that's going into alternatives and into EVs and all these things is going to depress returns in that sector for a long time to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's almost a symptom of stock market investors and participants to look forward without even realizing they're looking forward and actually sort of pricing in stuff that as you say is decades down the line so interesting to sort of retain a bit of perspective and context on on that energy story and kind of whilst we're on commodities um a brief tangent but but loosely related given that we're just talking about oil there uh, i saw i saw a tweet on your twitter feed yesterday uh, it read it is rare in macro forecasting when the stars align so perfectly the combination of inflation risks, capital scarcity, and 50 years of underperformance make commodities one of the most compelling long-term investment opportunities at the moment. So uh, I just say, I mean, obviously, a, a kind of line like that sticks out. Um, and I just wanted to get quickly your thoughts on 
kind of commodities in general and how excited you are about the opportunity in that space at the moment? Yeah, that, that came from a recent report from my friend, um, Jonathan Tepper's firm, Variant Perception. And I, I really value their work. Um, but I do think, and I've been writing for you know the last couple of years at least. Well, really, I mean, I turned strongly bullish on gold back in the summer of 2015, a little, little too early. But I think you know, the performance in, in the gold price has, and I, I wrote about this last, last year, just in a blog post, uh, is pointing to the fact that we're potentially seeing a paradigm shift away from financial assets and toward real assets. And there's a lot of macro reasons to believe this too. Over the next five, 10 years or longer, uh, I, I think you look at the also the the chart in that tweet was essentially the the value of commodities relative to i think it was the stock market and commodities are incredibly cheap relative to financial assets they have been for a few years uh and you combine that with the the macro backdrop and i do think commodities uh and and more broadly real assets are going to be um the the best performers uh, they're going to dramatically outperform financial assets over the next five, 10 years. Okay, great. Yeah, I was going to ask you for a time horizon on that. So you expect this sort of trend to play out over the next five to 10 years? Hey, or longer. I mean, I, I think we're in the middle of it. Gold, the gold price bottomed in, in late 15 and has been you know, trending higher since. There's a huge gap now between it and the CRB index, commodities index, which tells me, yeah, commodities are short-term overbought. They could experience a correction, but this gap is probably going to close. Uh, commodities probably have a very bright future over the next several years. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So another sort of sector of the market for our listeners to look out for. I'll link that variant perception article in the episode description. Uh, I, I read some of it myself before the call. So uh, definitely kind of highlight is an interesting read for, for those listening in. I'll also link uh, the article that we talked about at the top of the piece, your the kind of uh, your piece on uh, rampant speculation. I think that's definitely an interesting one for our listeners to get their head rounds as well. So finally, I wanted to bring up sort of a third area of, of the market that I guess has been talked about a lot uh, in the media. Um, and actually, it's hard to pick another asset that sort of polarizes opinion more than this and and it's bitcoin so bitcoin's value is essentially based on the fact that its supply is finite i think 21 million uh, is the number that, that people tend to trot out but i read a piece uh, by you that was published towards the start of the year i think that discussed the multiplying number or type of bitcoins now in circulation so we've got bitcoin cash bitcoin sv uh, those would be two iterations on the theme so do you think those sorts of iterations, that increase in circulation of different types of Bitcoin in any way undermines the value of Bitcoin at all? Yeah, I, I do believe that. I, I don't believe the, uh, uh, the premise that Bitcoin is truly limited in supply, I think. You know, for example, you know, it's, it's my understanding that Dogecoin is identical to Bitcoin, um, you know, just was um, created, um, you know, as a joke, uh, but it has the same, you know, exact technical specifications as as Bitcoin does, and so to me, that's you know emblematic of the fact that anybody can go create their own their own version of Bitcoin at any time, and uh, that's just not true for 
um, things that are truly limited in supply. And, and you know, in the article, I even point out that, you know, Bitcoin is forked several times um, through its history, I think at least four times. And every time that happens, uh, you know, that in my mind, it doubles the supply of Bitcoin. So whether it's original Bitcoin and then Bitcoin cash or Bitcoin gold splitting off from Bitcoin, that essentially, in, in my mind, doubles the amount of uh, Bitcoin in circulation. So, you know, yes, there are only ever going to be 21 million original Bitcoins created, but anybody can go create cryptocurrency um, at the drop of the drop of a hat. And, and to me, that is, uh, you know, argues against its, uh, the idea that, uh, that it's truly limited in supply. Uh, you know, I think Bitcoin um, might be terrific as a speculative vehicle. Right. I, I think that, uh, you know, and I called it a, a trading sardine, which, you know, relates back to, a, you know, a story, a famous, you know, Wall Street story, um, you know, the difference between eating sardines and trading sardines. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I think Bitcoin is a, is a, is a trading sardine. And, it, you know, in that um, it is a great vehicle. And I think that's exactly how Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller and those guys are looking at it. They're looking at it as a speculation. They don't see it as an investment. They see it as something that, uh, so long as other investors are, are you know, believe the story and are buying it and pushing prices higher, then uh, you know, uh, the trend and momentum's in its favor. Um, you know, why not? Why not speculate on on even higher prices? Um, so I'm not necessarily you know bullish or bearish on it. Um, it's just uh, it's not something that I see as a valid investment. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. And that's exactly why I asked the question, because having read the piece, it felt like there was a more sort of nuanced view to pull out there. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of fascinating to get, to get your thoughts on that. And actually, I guess at one point on kind of the, the more bullish side of the longevity and kind of the, the investment case, and, and I am talking in sort of investments here for Bitcoin, is that a lot of people are presuming at some point that one of these coins will win out so bitcoin is vastly more popular than bitcoin cash or sv and the other iterations and and the other coins uh, you know ethereum and all these sorts of things um and therefore does it on that basis have longevity in terms of a store of value in your opinion or, or do you not see that ever happening do you not see the whole market getting behind one coin one iteration um you know i i I see that's a possibility, but I, I think it's probably it would be against the odds for Bitcoin to become a true global currency. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll just say that I think somebody replied to my piece, you know, with kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of joke, saying, you know, um, I guess with an, an analogy, they said that uh, you know these newfangled automobiles um, will never catch on. Said the you know, the, the, the horse buggy salesman. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that, but it, it, to me, it was a very ironic because back, you know, a hundred years ago, there was an automobile bubble, right? I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of car companies and the vast majority of them went out of business. And so to me, the, the lack of uh, awareness that, you know, automobiles, it, you know, he was joking that, you know, the, when the automobile came out, you know, people said it was a bubble and clearly, we, you know, automobiles have become, you know, integral to society. But 
automobiles were a bubble when, when they came out. And so I do think there is a cryptocurrency bubble right now to, to try and pick which company is going to be the Ford Motors, the GM, you know, uh, is, is probably impossible to do. I do think the, the real risk to Bitcoin is that, uh, you know, governments and namely the U.S. government decides it's too big of a risk uh, and they create their own fiat cryptocurrency and, uh, you know, essentially outlaw Bitcoin. There's a, there's a lot of reasons for them to do that, um, you know. Uh, and, and, and so I think that that is major risk that is vastly underappreciated by Bitcoin aficionados. Yeah, yeah, I completely see what you mean. And just to pick up on, on your point, I think you mentioned sort of a few hedge fund managers there, sort of institutional acceptance or adoption of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more generally seems to be, well, I guess the, the penultimate piece in the puzzle, and you referenced the final piece in the puzzle there, which is a core sort of governmental acceptance. Um, two very big hurdles, but it does seem that at least that third or penultimate hurdle uh, is been kind of um, surpassed at the moment, I guess, in the sense that BNY Mellon, for example, the oldest bank in the US, um, are storing and managing Bitcoins on behalf of clients. But I'm, I'm getting a sense for you that, that, yes, they are doing that, but it's not because of any real sort of accept- acceptance of this as a kind of store of value in the long term and the long term I, I guess i mean sort of decades and multi-decades sort of time horizons here but more because you know it's, it's a speculation it's a speculative bet based on a swell in sort of retail demand i suppose Would that be fair absolutely i do think you know uh my friend grant williams put out a terrific podcast recently an interview with tony deaton and who makes a a, a very important distinction between his own uh, investment practice in Wall Street, which is largely uh, comprised of uh, investment uh, businesses. And so the difference between a practice and a business, a practice, you know, says, I'm going to do what I believe is right for my, my clients, my patients, whoever you want to you know, look at it. Uh, a, a business says, I'm just going to give people what they want. Right, not necessarily what they need or what they should have. And Wall Street is, you know, there, there's a long, long history of Wall Street giving people what they want in order to profit from that, rather than giving people what they what they need. And and I think we've, you I mean, see that time and time again. And uh, you know, Wall Street just looking for a way to profit from um, natural demand. So I think that's probably what's what's going on here. Is, is Wall Street doesn't necessarily these banking systems don't necessarily believe in in uh, the Bitcoin premise. They just want a way to, to profit from it. Uh, you know, like they say in a in a in a gold rush, most of the money is made from selling picks and shovels, not from actually uh, discovering gold. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, I'll leave Bitcoin there, and actually we've. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but we've probably got a couple of minutes before I move us on to our, our quick fire question round to finish the interview. So perhaps I can ask, you know, we've talked about a few interesting opportunities there, Bitcoin, commodities, energy. Is there one that we haven't discussed at the moment, an area of the market that you're particularly bullish on, perhaps that many other market participants aren't considering right now? Well, right at the very top of the uh, the interview, I, I mentioned interest rates. And I do think, um, you know, 
there are, um, to steal Diego's uh, phrase again, there are some anti-bubbles in the markets right now that are still very attractive. I do think one of them is the gold price, which is the flip side of the, uh, the bubble in cryptocurrencies. I think you know gold prices have been hurt by rising real interest rates over the past six months. And that's, to me, a function of uh, interest rates rising faster than inflation. But I do think over the next and, and there's a risk gold could trade trade lower over the next month or so. But I do think at, you know, from you know, several months from now, uh, we're going to look back and see that inflation's probably rising faster than interest rates, which will you know, shift uh, that real rates from being a headwind for the gold price to being a tailwind. Um, you know, by the same token, rising interest rates, uh, to, to, by the way I figure it, um, Growth stocks have essentially gone risen so far due to a lot of the speculation that they're essentially priced in negative interest mm-hmm. rates. And so with interest rates rising now, to me, I think that makes growth stocks particularly uh, vulnerable. And um, you know, so uh, I, I do think to me, what's going on in rates is the most interesting thing, and it does create opportunities. Um, I think, uh, you know, like I said, the gold price is an interesting one. I think there's an opportunity right here um, to be adding gold on weakness and to be maybe avoiding uh, sh- shifting uh, out of um, growth stocks right now. Yeah, so shifting out of growth stocks and pivoting into value stocks or not? Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of hinted. I don't really like value as a, as a factor. Um, to me, uh, if, you, if you adhere to Ben Graham's philosophy, you can't really invest, you know, value investing has to be done through individual security analysis. So it's not just as simple as finding something that's a cheap price to book value, price to cash flow. Half, you know, the analysis is, requires more than that. So yeah, I think pivoting out of growth stocks into uh, real assets generally is probably um, a smart thing to do right now. Yeah. Okay. Real assets, that's the key takeaway. Okay, nice. That's, that's the perfect place to sort of end the main body of the interview uh, and I'll, I'll go over to now our quick fire question round so this is something we ask all of our guests um simply a, a light-hearted way to end the episode um and feel free to keep your answer short one, one sentence one word is absolutely fine um first question in your opinion what is the top mistake investors make uh recency bias <laughs> i think we, we are we have a tendency to take the take recent history and extrapolate it indefinitely into the future. And I, that, that is regularly a major mistake people make. Yeah, um, that, that's a really interesting point, actually. And I won't spend too long on it, but I guess something that's sort of emphasizing that and encouraging that recency bias is the amount of media that we get, whether it's newsletters, uh, online articles, uh, videos on YouTube, social media, et cetera, that, that almost exacerbates that recency bias. Is that sort of a fair assessment? Absolutely. And, and as my friend Peter Atwater likes to say, media reflects mood. And so the media can be a terrific sentiment signal um, for understanding, you know, how to, you know, when contrarian opportunities present themselves. Mm. Okay, great. So question two, then, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? Uh, I mentioned, you know, variant perception. I do read their work and, and value it. Um, I, you know, for me, my most valuable, um, 
network or resource is those that I follow on Twitter. I follow a little over a hundred accounts and it's everyone from value investors like myself to technicians to macro investors. And that, that network um, to me is, is uh, very valuable. Yeah. Okay, great. So third question, what is the most memorable moment from your career today? Most memorable moment from my career. Um, well, you know, to, I mentioned recency mm-hmm. bias, so I think you know, it, it's going to be recent history. Obviously, there are things I, you know, I've had. I think my it's my losses. I've had major losses, um, you know, and I think everybody uh, who learns anything in the markets, we all learn more from mistakes than yeah. anything else, and so. Um, you know, I've, I've had some some major mistakes in my career. Those are the things that stick with me, and and I consciously remind myself of those things so that I I, I try not to make those mistakes over over and over again. Yeah, true. And I, I don't I don't want to so uh, I don't want to ask if if you if you're not willing to share. But are there any particular losses or bets that that didn't come off that particularly stung? Absolutely. Um, several years ago, I was I was putting on a big position in. Corinthian College is a for-profit uh, kind of, you know, blue-collar career, um, you know, college. And uh, it was, I think, shortly after uh, Obama took office and mm. uh, his administration decided to put a lot of those companies out of business. And uh, I, I was not, I didn't appreciate that risk um, near enough. And uh, that was that was a big loser for me. <laughs> and so... It's uh, something I remind myself of regularly that uh, there are risks that you uh, you just can't see, and, and so you have to have to be aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry to revisit that, but it's always fascinating to hear about people's losses. Um, so the final question then: What is an investor's best source of alpha? So if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? I think it comes from being willing to step into the most hated asset class, most hated stock, most hated security uh, in the market. Um, to me, when something is is really, really out of favor, it's usually priced such that uh, when that sentiment subsides, people don't even need to get positive on it. They just need to hate it less. And uh but you can make a great deal of money. And so I ask myself regularly, what's the most hated asset class right now? What's the most hated stock in the market? Because that's to me where I find, um, you know, the, the, the greatest opportunity. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, yeah, I think that's a really fascinating takeaway and a, a very different way to look at the markets than some of our listeners would have previously anticipated. So uh, I'll leave it there. Um, all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Jesse. It's been a real pleasure. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.